This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I conclude a two-part series with John Champion. John was one of two co-founders of MissionLogPod.com, an exploration of every Star Trek television episode and movie beginning in 2012. Originally scheduled to end by 2026, it now will extend further out. In a wide-ranging conversation, John talks about his mission, his original partner, Ken Ray, the inspiration and founder of MissionLogPod.com, Rod Roddenberry, and how they are exploring Star Trek in ways that, uh, frankly, no one else has, and keeping the legacy of Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek alive today. It's a fascinating exploration. If you know the history of the title of this podcast, Greetings and Felicitations, this is the podcast for you. In this episode two, we pick up with Deep Space Nine, begin to talk about Star Trek Voyager, talk about the new television shows, Picard and Star Trek Discovery, and where Roddenberry Entertainment is headed down the road. Uh, after the TAS, the animated series, uh, I think at that point you went to the movies. Yep. And we went through the movies. Uh, one of the storylines through the movies was uh, Gene becoming less and less involved. Yep. R. Bennett and others sort of taking over the producer role. We had some great directors. Obviously, we had some great movies that yeah. uh, we all loved and cherished. And that took us up to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And... Uh, I remember asking you or having a conversation with you about that, and and you said something along the lines of, Tom, the original series hit the ground running. They had everything rolling in the right direction, and they just nailed it. And that wasn't true for the next generation. But the next generation was able to, and that we didn't even talk about in the middle of a horrific writer strike right uh that yeah. led to yeah. more chaos yeah. beyond simply the individuals involved but they did hit their stride and yeah. it became uh, probably people from not my generation the most beloved science fiction there is yeah. Yeah. so how was that experience looking through uh the next generation for you yeah you know it, it's interesting that when you do look at tos uh, the original series for those of you who are not Trek fans, and I, I'm shocked that you're still listening if you're not. Um, they had the benefit of Star Trek having not existed before they started it. So you really had this completely blank slate to just say, look, we have a ship, we have these characters, now let's go find writers to make these stories. And every time you create a new Star Trek, you are burdened with all the Star Trek that came before you. And um, say what you will about any of the current iterations, because there are multiple current iterations of Star Trek on the air or having just gone off the air and coming back, you know, but th- this is sort of a new golden age for Trek production. Um, but the problem with all of that is that they are saddled with 
first of all, outrageous fan expectation and also the history that came before it. Next Gen is really unique in that it is the first time and the only time you get to reboot a franchise or not necessarily reboot, but but um, reinvent, carry on, create the sequel for a series for the first time. You, you only get that once, you know? And there was a lot of pushback and you could tell that you still had all these writer producers from the 60s who were trying to reinvent this show for the 80s, but they also needed to bring in some new talent. And especially that first season, they just don't quite find it. And you can tell where these two generations, literally and figuratively, are bumping up against each other. Because here you have Gene saying, we can't reference the original series. And yet the second episode of Next Gen is a remake of an original series episode. And for better or for worse, there are certain good elements that come out of that. But if you were like me and you were a Star Trek fan watching, you just go, why are they redoing this? Why are they doing it now and doing it as clunky as they are? You know, So kind of the beauty of a show that came out at the time that it did, under the conditions uh, of the time, you're in first-run syndication, so you don't have to worry about a network, which is great. That is the saving grace of Star Trek. If you didn't have that in the 80s, we probably would not be talking about Star Trek now um, because it would have died on broadcast, no question about it. Um, and it's kind of the same thing happening now with streaming. You know, uh, the, the syndication model is gone, essentially. So without streaming, you're back to broadcast, and shows like that die on broadcast, you know. Um, but they had the luxury of that syndication model. They had the luxury of making, you know, 26 episodes a season and re really being able to flex their creative muscles to let the show grow and change over time. And fortunately, there were enough fans who stuck with it and allowed it to grow and change over time that it could become this much beloved part of the franchise. I, I was trying my best to hold off about talking about the Trek Files, but I have to now. Let's talk about it. We can talk about whatever you want, man. Yeah. Uh, the Trek Files yeah. is is one of my favorite shows, um, and and I bring that up now because uh, Larry brought on um, someone who was he had to sell the syndication of those right. shows the first year, right. and he talked about what he did to sell that and how that it was different than anything he had ever sold before because previously it all went to network. And yeah. now you've tied that syndication model to really why the um, uh, franchise was able to not simply thrive, but, but it succeed so well. And yeah. so we see kind of the, the business and the artistic side sort of come together. But I guess now would be a great time to talk about the Trek files. Yeah. And if you're a geek, it is the <laughs> ultimate geek show. But tell us, and, and when you do your introduction, once again, it's it's your voice, so I'm familiar with it, but yeah. I can just hear the geekness come out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, my, my job on that show is relatively easy. You know, I'm, I'm helping with Larry to pull together the ideas and, and the guests make some suggestions here and there. But I'm sitting in this room, sometimes across from Larry, sometimes across from a guest as well very often on Zoom. And um, 
re- reading at you know, just finding this great little bit of nostalgia that absolutely speaks to the time it speaks to literally the day that somebody sat down and wrote a letter to Gene or Gene wrote back to somebody or it was a memo arguing some point on the show um I, I'm sort of a sort of a context nerd and whenever I see something like that I I really want to build it in my head okay it was you know a Tuesday in 1968 and Bob Justman was angry because the production was spending too much money on shooting local promos (laughs) you know i want to know everything that led up to that moment i want to know what the fallout was and uh bob had a great mind for writing a memo they were always sharp and pointed and usually pretty funny he had his own language it seems um so i get just as excited hearing these deep dives as as anybody else no question. Uh, one other moment from the Trek Files I have to ask about, and that was uh, Dorothy Fontana. Yeah. You were able to bring her on uh, shortly before she she passed on, mm-hmm. and she told the stories that you've related about her, frankly, struggles in the 60s yeah. as a woman uh, uh, being a screenwriter and really articulated how she had to, to fight for her right uh, to submit a screenplay and had to continue that fight literally through the animated series. Yeah. Yeah, and and then later on too. I mean, you'd think that somebody who had cut their teeth doing this great show and doing great work, and and beloved by fans as well. And those early conventions, she was there. She was a part of those, um, but still had to struggle. Still had to prove her worth, which seems entirely unfair. It's always interesting to me that when we bring in people for the Trek files. The first answer is usually the same, which is, oh, I don't know why you want to talk to me. That stuff was 30, 40 years ago. I don't remember any of that. You should talk to somebody else. And then you kind of, you know, just bend them a little bit. Oh, come on. It doesn't, you know, the document doesn't really matter. We just want to hear what you have to say. And then you get them behind the mic and then you start talking about it. And all that stuff floods out. (laughs) All that stuff comes back. And it just, you don't want the conversation to end. Yeah. Uh, then we move to Deep Space Nine. Uh, and, and you brought up Andy Robinson as Garrick, mm. uh, my favorite character on DS9. He's incredible. And yeah. the, the little part you talked about him, uh, that was very Garrick-like yes. to say that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but when I started listening to that series and I went back and, and started to rewatch the series, uh, I felt something which was something along the lines of the following. Uh, we've always heard the story of Star Trek, the original series, was wagon train to the stars. Mm-hmm. I never felt that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Deep Space Nine seemed to me to be the Wild West. Yeah. And the outpost D- Deep Space Nine was civilization on the edge of, of chaos. Yeah. And that it's in rewatching it, I had not fully appreciated sort of the flexible morality and moral decisions made by everyone, every cast member, uh, which I attributed to, to being sort of on the Wild West. What were your yeah. thoughts moving to DS9 uh, <laughs> as well? Yeah, um, that that is a challenging question because I, I had many thoughts. Um, and primarily there was a, a little bit of 
fear on my part because I, I knew TOS so well because it's what I grew up with. And, and just a, as we age and our memories develop, you know, those things that left an impression when you were that young tend to stick with you. So I knew TOS very well. And I knew TNG very well. Even though I hadn't seen maybe every single episode, I had seen 90% of them. And I just, I knew that cast and I knew that overall story very well. So it was familiar ground for me. DS9 came out at a time that I was just not paying that much attention to TV. So maybe I caught a couple of episodes here and there, but I, it just didn't click with me because partly I just, I knew that I wasn't going to keep up with it. I knew that I wasn't going to dedicate the time for appointment TV. Very different in the 90s than it is now. There is no such thing as appointment TV anymore. You, you know, stream something when you want. Um, the other thing about DS9 that was and remained a challenge for Mission Log is that, how do I put this? <laughs> DS9 fans are very protective of DS9. And I get it. We all have the things that we love. And I very much enjoy going on a podcast or something and being the advocate for the thing that I feel like gets overlooked or underappreciated. I can't tell you how many podcasts I've been on talking about the 1980 Flash Gordon uh, because I love that movie deeply, but I also recognize that it is flawed <laughs> and there are many people who simply don't appreciate it, and that's fine. DS9 was so divisive in its time. Right. Continues to be that way. But I also have to create a little bit of professional distance from the subject matter when we talk about it on a podcast. I sit in this chair because I love Star Trek. You, you've been in my office. You've seen the art on our walls. I am surrounded by Star Trek, and I, I would go insane if I didn't love it on some fundamental level, right? At the same time, I need to be able to size up each episode and each series and each character by the, the quality of the writing, the decisions that are made in those stories, and ultimately what we say on Mission Log, the morals, meanings, messages. If you're telling this story, if you're taking the time to carve out this hour of TV viewing to tell the story, why? And what do you want me to get at the end of it? So I can't be too precious about any particular show or any particular series because we need to examine it. If we're here saying, if you and I are talking because Star Trek is important, okay, then we need to examine that and figure out why and figure out if all of those messages really are worthwhile. And the place that I feel like we kept bumping heads with the most diehard of DS9 fans was not in saying that, I, I think there was a misunderstanding we would look at the shows and say, wow, these characters are really flawed and they make some flawed decisions. And, and people would rightfully say, yeah, and that's what makes it great because it, it's real and that, that, that makes those characters relatable and realistic. Yeah, we get that. All the other characters in Star Trek can and should have understandable, relatable aspects of their personality. The difference is what do we do with that? And 
by the time we got to the end of DS9, it felt like there were a lot of missed opportunities. There were a lot of storylines that were tied up very nicely, some not so well. But there were other points where you just felt like, or at least I felt like, um, decisions didn't have consequences that really needed to have consequences. And DS9 was sold to me many times by fans as saying, well, this is the most real because everything has a consequence and, and, and they exist in this real, you know, quote unquote, real universe where, where everything is connected. And I, okay, great. But then when you get to the end of the series and you're like, oh, well, that stuff didn't matter at all. <laughs> that, that, that was actually never dealt with in any relatable way at all then uh, I'm going to take exception to it, <laughs> you know? And, and, and maybe, maybe the expectation was almost set a little too high because there's something about the very episodic nature of TOS and TNG where a character can make a bad decision, you resolve it, and you know that you're moving on for the next episode. It'll probably never be talked about again. Um... But when you then set out to create a series where you say, no, no, all of this is important and everything that happens to these characters is important, and then you kind of forget about it, <laughs> you know, look, there is no TV series that is perfect. There, there is no way to tell this sort of very long form uh, uh, fictional exercise that is perfect. Um, we, we want our fiction to be better than perfect in in many ways um but i i i found that ds9 to this day i will say has some of the best written characters some of the best dialogue some of the most incredible relationships in star trek i wish that we had that quality of writing on tng you know um because there, there are things that now even though ds9 is in the past for me there are things that will still irk me and we still get emails about it. <laughs> no question. So uh, I can't remember if it was four or five years ago, mm -hmm. uh, you started doing, uh, I was, I'm going to call it a live show. Yep. It is a live show. It is yep. a live show. Yeah. And that was around Star Trek discovery. Yep. And so tell us what was it like to pivot to something like that? Was it just, Oh, we're doing another form of, audio entertainment or was it something different for you it was terrifying because we could never get the tech to work <laughs> we i mean like literally days hours before we're like we, we don't know if this is going to work we keep trying all these different platforms we we don't and and i still don't understand the tech behind it thank god we've got an incredibly talented technical director producer with earl green he is awesome but the whole conceit behind the live show was based on two things one was that we don't have the time to create mission log around this new series, just because mission log on its own takes so long to do. Um, and two, if that and any other new Star Trek is being told in a serialized format, we don't have the luxury of using the mission log format because the mission log format is you watch an episode, and you figure out what it's trying to say, what are the morals, and then you move on. Discovery isn't written that way. They, they boldly say, oh yeah, look, every episode is a chapter in a book. 
So you can't do a book review on one chapter. Try as I might have in high school, it doesn't work, you know? So we, we put the burden on our audience in order to say, okay, look, when we do Mission Log Live, it's just us having a conversation. It really is just us saying, what did you think? And part of it's speculative, where do you think it's going? Um, it, we tend to be critical but good-natured, I would say. I think right now, because so much criticism, practically all of it is done on the internet, um, I feel like there's a lot of negativity that is just anger feeding anger. What we're trying to do is start from a place saying, all right, look, we're all Star Trek fans here. What do we like? What do we didn't like? That's fair game, absolutely. But what what are our hopes and aspirations for this show? Where do, where do we want it to go? And where does it get it right if it gets it right? You know. So yeah, the live show is purely an experiment. Fortunately, it's been working, kinda. <laughs> I always look forward to just getting on the air and then handing the mic over. All right, what did you think? You tell me. <laughs> uh I have found that Star Trek Discovery at times had some of the best science fiction writing I have ever seen. Sometimes yeah. perhaps not, but yeah. uh, last season particularly, uh, or, or maybe two seasons ago, was mm -hmm. some of the finest science fiction I'd ever seen on television, and I just marveled at the quality of the screenwriters. Did you have any sense of that? Yeah, I, th that's sort of the weird thing. Is I, I think there are great characters on that show. I think there are great actors on that show. Clearly, they can tell these stories with this epic budget and scope that you just couldn't do on TV 20 years ago much less 50 years ago. So they have all these advantages uh, working for them. Um, I still get frustrated because I feel like each season kind of starts with this finding their footing, like, well, we're just going to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. But then when they find it, they really find it. Uh, this ending for season four, the final three or four episodes, I think are just magnificent. Some of the best science fiction writing some of the best Star Trek writing that we've had in a long time. But it's a different animal because it just is. You're telling a story in 10 to 13 episodes instead of, well, 26 one-hour stories. And you're telling these modern stories a year, sometimes two years apart. So it's just a very different approach to production. Um, for better or for worse. You know, the better is that we get these deep character moments, we get these big arcs, we get this epic storytelling. And then the worse is that sometimes you go like, wait, are they following the right thread here? Or why did it take us 10 episodes to get to this when we could have done that here? But, you know, that's that's fine. That's kind of the nature of the beast. And we also have Picard, and we're now into season two of Picard. And in season one, I was a little bit torn because absolutely love uh, the characters. Mm -hmm. And every time we would see one of the old gang, I was either, oh, yeah. or, oh, my God, it's Will Riker. <laughs> right, um, right. And uh, am, I, am I having too much nostalgia? Is the show too much nostalgia? And I want to say that in, in maybe yeah. contrasting. Season two seems to me to have fabulous science fiction writing, and I'm learning a depth uh, particularly around the Borg, that I had no appreciation of. So uh, is there room for growth in a series that's clearly uh, focused on the past? I, 
I, you know, I keep wondering the same thing. Uh, you, you and I are in the same boat. I, I, I think nostalgia is a powerful and legitimate uh, uh, aspect to telling that story. I think that's fine. You know, I, I, we all enjoy things that we enjoyed before. The, the trouble with the sequel is you want different but the same. And that the same part is the nostalgia that you had for what came before. So I, I think that's fair. It's totally fair to have that as an element. But I, I also think that we all also have our own sort of limit of where that, uh, how much of that nostalgia is too much or too little. And with Picard, like one scene will happen, I'll go, oh, wow, that's great. I love that little nod. And then something else will happen. I'm like, well, they didn't have to spoon feed that to me, <laughs> you know, because at that point, who is it for? If it's for me, well, I already got the reference. Like I already know. And I say this about Lower Decks as well. Like I already get the joke that you're trying to tell me. So you don't have to tell me the joke after you did the joke, you know. Um, but if that's intended for an audience who is new to Star Trek and they don't get it, well, they don't have the memory of that thing to begin with so why are you trying to force it on them as something to remember they they, they weren't there to begin with so I, I find myself kind of going back and forth with that um i'm enjoying many aspects of season two of picard i think the mvp is uh seven of nine it's jerry ryan playing seven of nine there is so much growth there there is so much depth there which we also got in Voyager. I think that's one of the most compelling characters to come out of Star Trek in the same way that Spock is the most compelling character to come out of Star Trek. Or uh, in TNG, I, I would even say that I think Seven kind of eclipses Data in terms of that, that core Trek story, finding humanity, understanding what it means to be alive and among other people. I was uh, having a discussion uh, with uh, someone. We were doing cyborgs versus robots, and <laughs> and of course uh, we talked about data. And every time I see that story, all I can think of is Pinocchio. Sure. Because all Pinocchio wants to be yep. is a little boy. Yep. But with Seven of Nine, it's it's the reverse. Yeah. She's she's been Pinocchio before. She's Pinocchio now, and in yeah. the interim, she was something different. Yeah. And that whole journey is, I didn't think we could expand past what we had seen around Locutus. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. She is stealing the show for me on this season. I mean, Locutus was a Borg for a very brief time. And it was traumatic and horrifying. And obviously those memories stuck with Picard. Um, for Seven, you know, Annika Hansen was assimilated at the age of six something like that really young so her entire development into an adult is as a borg and when you remove that like how, how do you have any sense of your identity it, it would be absolutely horrifying now what's so interesting in picard is turning those tables removing those implants entirely and removing that history that lived history for her by changing the timeline, changing the characters. So that that was so interesting to me uh, an episode or two ago when Rafi pointed out to Seven, like, you know, something's different about you here. Like you are enjoying this timeline 
more than you should. How much harder is it then for her to go back if and when they resolve this timeline issue? I think that is an absolutely fascinating line of exploration to go down for this character. You know, they were able to encapsulate that for me in one extraordinarily brief scene when she first wakes up and she touches her forehead. Yep. She sees in the mirror and there's no piece of metal there. Yeah. And that discommunicated all of that to me. Um, now, let's talk about uh, there's much more to Roddenberry Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so could you t tell us a little bit about some of the other directions you guys have gone and uh uh, really the the breadth and scope of uh, what you guys are doing. So I, it's, you know, we're this uh, big little company. <laughs> and uh, my little slice of it has to do with uh, primarily all the Trek or science fiction related podcasts. So Mission Log and Mission Log Live and the Trek Files and Sci-Fi 5, which is our daily uh, science fiction, you know, five minutes of sci-fi history every weekday and uh, that's really my focus and then uh, Roddenberry Entertainment as a name is a production partner on all the new Star Trek series so when you watch Discovery or Picard or Lower Decks or Prodigy you see the Roddenberry Entertainment logo at the end of that so and, and that's you know, I, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying Rod does not see himself as a TV producer, but uh, but he is glad to have the association back between Roddenberry and Star Trek, you know, um, because the values are important to him. That's that, that's what it's all about, you know, for him. Um, Roddenberry also kind of evolved from, uh, uh, you know, th this is what came out of Lincoln Enterprises when Gene and Majel in those early days were selling reproduction scripts and the, the clips uh, off the editing room floor from the original series and all the stuff that they could come up with and, you know, literally just driving from convention to convention and doing that and meeting fans. That turned into Roddenberry Entertainment and now, rather than being this place with all the Star Trek stuff, now it's about the content, you know. So whether it's podcasts, uh, original IP, original productions, our, our hand in current Star Trek, that's what the company is about now. And um, for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have my slice of it, which is hosting and producing podcasts. That affords me being able to do some cool things like go to conventions and and host there or uh, host a panel doing interviews I, I love stuff like that so I get to stay in that world which is really gratifying well John uh, unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode but if people wanted more information on uh, Roddenberry Entertainment or missionlogpodcast.com where would they go yeah. so I mean for Roddenberry in general go to roddenberry.com but I would also direct you to the sub site within that podcasts.roddenberry.com where you can find all the shows that I do and some of the additional shows that come out of the company and some of our partner shows we have a, a few shows that we don't produce uh, but we carry them as, you know, part of uh, the, the Roddenberry package because they speak to a certain angle that we want to hear from. Uh, so Roddenberry.com, podcast.roddenberry.com. If you want to find Mission Log specifically, as you said, missionlogpodcast.com. That'll lead you to our whole archive and ways to connect with us. And um, 
yeah, we're, it's just a constant thing, you know? Uh, it, it literally never ends because there's always a comment to answer, an email to get to, a show to prepare. Uh, Norman and I have been doing uh, a YouTube uh, segment. This is something I would point people to, uh, youtube.com slash Roddenberry Prod or Roddenberry Entertainment, youtube.com slash Roddenberry Entertainment. We've been putting more and more of our shows on YouTube and we've been doing a feedback show about 10 minutes a day called Mission Log Engage. And when we get those challenging or thoughtful, sometimes praising, those are very rare, but you know, when we get those emails or comments we want to address, it's much more fun to do that in a conversational way than to type out a very kind of dry email. So we've been going back through in some recent comments, some older comments that we can address in that format, Mission Log Engage. And that is only on YouTube right now. John, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. It's been uh, great to catch up with you and hear about uh, everything you, uh, Rod, uh, at Roddenberry Entertainment are doing. And I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. Thank you very much. Well, they, there's always a next, it seems. So yeah, because uh, like I said, Star Trek does not go away. So uh, thanks for joining us. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast series with John Champion. If you're a Star Trek fan like I am, you've uh, really appreciated having John's insights, stories about Rob Roddenberry and his father, Gene Roddenberry, and how they're continuing to carry the message, morals, and meanings of Star Trek through MissionLockPodcast.com. We're going to link to you all of the sites of Roddenberry Entertainment. I hope that you will check them out. Greetings and Felicitations is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.